It's episode 98 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Cheryl Platts. She's a principal designer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the author of the new book, Design Beyond Devices. We're going to discuss all the different ways we communicate with machines, how they respond, and how we as designers can be more intentional about all of it. Cheryl, thanks so much for being on the show. Delighted to be here with you today, Jeff. How are you? I am hanging in there. We were just talking about how we might need some different words for existence in this time of times. That's right. That's right. Today is a good day. We can go with that, I think. Um, uh, well, um, it's wonderful to have you here. As, as you know, as we, as we all know, we're recording an episode in the middle of this global pandemic. But uh, I have to imagine that in this moment, working inside the Gates Foundation has to be spectacularly interesting. It is always interesting, yes. <laughs> Certainly when I started there two years ago, I Bill probably saw this coming. He told everyone yeah. this was coming, and I say Bill as if I've met him. I have not. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> just want to make that entirely clear. That yeah. We're not all friends or anything like that. He's very busy gentleman, and I'm very glad for my place of employment. But um, you know, it's it's been in a, a challenging and exciting time. Yeah, it's... Uh, my current role has is focused on defining the future of knowledge management for the foundation. Ooh. And that has, you know, that has meant going like whole, whole kernel into like looking at the types of information our folks in the front lines are dealing with uh. the COVID and all. And, and uh, it's humbling, you know, that seeing the volume of information people are dealing with and the speed at which they're dealing with it. Like just looking at the, the scope of information people had to cope with in March and April. Mm -hmm. um, it, as, a, as user experience, like researcher and designer, it was really interesting because I was doing initial studies on how people were using Teams. And uh, they I, I was kind of doing a quant study where I was going through a bunch of our different Teams channels and uh, like it, looking at the different p patterns of posting uh, and just looking at how people were communicating, like here's stuff from WHO, here's stuff from CDC, here's how people are communicating across channel. Uh, it's, you know, we're all just humans, right? Yeah. Like the, the, we're humans at the foundation too. And watching how humans were trying to cope with this really superhuman problem. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't want to like get overly excited about it, like a news broadcaster at a, at a, you know, at like a major event. Cause it's, it's like a terrible event. Um, but it's, it like, th there's a lot of gravity and there's a lot of opportunity for us to like improve things even further. Like really the tools should get out of the way. And yeah. like, I'm already on a soapbox. It's not about my book, but I'll talk, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just make this point and then we can go on to the book because I will say that like working at the foundation, I get a lot of people coming to me and being like, hi, I'm questioning my career and I want to talk about social good careers. I'm like, that's great. And, and honestly, we don't, we have a full-time employee cap. We don't hire a lot, but mm -hmm. the, the thing I work in it right now, like at the foundation, I'm in information technology. And right. pe when people think about jobs in the foundation, they don't picture that they picture like people out there with test tubes and, uh, you know, goggles on. And the point I want to make to designers is that the most important work in social good is not the glamorous work. Like when I was interviewing for my job, we, the work was described as stage managers for the work. And uh, as an actor, that resonated with me very deeply. Stage managers are incredibly competent and important human beings, and no show would ever get off the ground without them. Uh, but 
you, you know, don't go to the place that's the shiniest. Don't go to the role that's the shiniest. Like there are so many organizations that literally just need help with the fundamentals. Like people are automatically going to solving problems with like AI and stuff. Like Teams is challenging. Like I, mm. I'm in groups where a bunch of nonprofits are all trying to work through these knowledge management problems and it's working with day-to-day -day tools. And every designer has the capability to help nonprofits cope with these things without any extra tools. So those who, the people who are looking to have social good uh, can do it in their communities, can do it uh, at, at any nonprofit, even if they're not necessarily at the forefront of technology. Um, so I want to leave that with a lot of designers who are, who are pondering how they might have a better impact. The tools should get out of the way. And a lot of uh, nonprofits don't know that we can help them do that. Right. Uh, either on a volunteer basis or uh, as a, as a career or, or as a professional, and uh, that's a big opportunity, I think, in the years ahead. I think that's that's a a really important message, and the metaphor of a stage manager, I think, is incredibly apt. I mean, I uh, uh, I have worked with the person I consider kind of my best friend for off and on twenty years now. Uh, he was the the guy who ran all the business at Adaptive Path, our agency, and then my co-founder when we did a when we did the Typekit startup. And his background was as a stage manager uh, on and off Broadway when he first got out of acting school and realized he didn't want to act. He's like, no, that's not the job for me. But wow, I really like taking a whole group of very creative people and making something high quality happen on time. And that like that level of like you know, when, uh, when we were running the startup and, and like, we are going to launch, like the curtain is going to go up. That was, mm -hmm. uh, such a motivating and driving force that, uh, that, uh, I think that's, that's a really interesting way to frame up a lot of the work that we do, you know, when we're making products or, or, or services or things like that. Super Any problem on Broadway has to be solvable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, or at least most of them do. Pandemics are a little harder, but, uh, most, yeah. most day-to-day -day problems, stage managers have to approach as solvable. So you, uh, have an interesting background in that you, you, you talk a lot in the book and, and in various places I've seen you writing and speaking about uh, the experience you've had as an actor uh, and doing improv in particular, uh, which is something I've always found really interesting in the work that I've done kind of culturally with the teams I've worked with. And how do we get the, like, the best ideas out of people? And it seems like there's just a tremendous amount of overlap with the, with the improv technique and, and things like that. It, there is, although I'll, I'll admit that it took me a long time to figure out what from my improv background was useful. Because, you know, when we talk about psychology and stuff, when things get uh, become instinctive, it becomes hard for us to talk about them, right? It becomes hard for us to teach them in a way. Like, it's hard for me. When I think about touch typing, it all falls apart for me, right? I'm like, oh, God, I can't I can't do it anymore. I, I, I've forgotten. I'm, a, uh, I'm hunt, hunting and pecking. Uh so it, it took me a couple of years after going professional improv to kind of walk it back and say, oh, I see these things that I'm doing are not natural to other people. And I can help folks by maybe talking about them or uh, being more concrete about them. I mean, the thing that everybody thinks about is, oh, well, it must be so useful in presentations. And certainly it is. I think that same mentality of treating every problem as solvable that we just talked about with the stage managers is something that's endemic to improvisers. Because when you're on stage and people have paid 
to see you and there are lights and yeah. the scene is going and something that you did not want to have happen happens or like something awkward happens or there is an awkward silence. You can't just walk out. I mean, you can, but like that's the, the <laughs> way you got to that point where people paid to see you is that you have learned that you don't that you don't just walk out, that you treat it as a solvable problem. And more than that, you treat it as a gift. That uh -huh. You treat that that as a, that constraint as a gift and you work it into the fabric of the scene. You say, ah, that problem is the reason the scene exists. That's what makes it unique. That's what makes it uh, the reason we're here today. Um, and and that reframing is, is so useful for designers uh, to say like, aha, that thing that you're complaining about the thing that's frustrating, the thing that you think is holding you back is actually the thing that's going to uh, to make you unique, is going to make this uh, special and graceful. And, you know, people who have been designing for accessibility and inclusivity have kind mm. of known this for a while. Like those constraints yeah. are often gifts. Like they they force us to, to do more with less in a way that helps everybody. So that's one way like the mindset of improv has helped. I've also been reflecting particularly lately because one one way I've used improv is in Twitch television shows where we play role playing games live on on mm, air. Sure. Um. Uh. Yeah. You're like sure. As if that's like a totally normal thing. To <laughs> I love that you just go with it. It was like oh, I've watched so it. Was, it. Uh, we're, oh, you have. Oh, tw oh, Twitch is big in my household. There's a lot, lots of watching of Minecraft and Fortnite, of course. But then exploring a little bit, and I was shocked to see people sitting around playing actually like with cards, Magic the Gathering, with cameras overhead of the table and things like that. I was like, this is super interesting. That's awesome. You are you are very Twitch literate too. Well, kudos to you. I find that I, Twitch is so fascinating to me, and like I've been a solo broadcaster for years there. But the mm. RPG experience in general, not just like broadcasting on air, but when you play with friends, that is also improv. Yeah, it, and interesting. Role playing pl game players have to develop this kind of dual mentality. There's like what I know versus what the the characters around me know. And they have to resolve that. And that's so important when we talk about like content strategy and we talk about like teaching and discoverability. Like we, it's so easy to forget that like we're what we know is not what the customer knows, right? We're so mm. close to the product. We talk about that all the time. We're not the users. And when, when you, you develop this mentality where you're like, yes, I understand that that person is, uh, you know, king of the wastes, but my character doesn't or that character doesn't. And so I have to operate in a way to like explain it to them, or I have to, you know, I have to operate my character in a way to, to deal with the fact that, that, that information is not yet revealed. That, that mindset is actually useful to a designer. Like I use that mindset at the foundation when we're rolling out new products. Like, yes, I understand. I know everything about the current state of teams meetings, but somebody who's already at full cognitive load trying to trying to you know, get a vaccine approved. And here I am telling you, okay, well, we're switching from Skype to Teams. They're incredibly intelligent individuals that have exactly zero brain cells to spare for a new tool. So I need to like find the problems they have and connect them to the, the solutions I know exist in the tools uh, and and understand that they, they don't have that visibility yet. Um, so those mm. are, it's, uh, it's a different sort of, of improv. And then the last way, uh, well, not last way. There are many ways improv gives gifts, but one way that made it into the book in particular is a storytelling framework. When we're on stage, 
we have to tell a compelling story quickly because a lot of scenes are five, five minutes or less. So we have to build this rich context that the, the audience can picture quickly. And my theater, Unexpected Productions in the Pike Place Market, which if you've heard of the gum wall, that's our fault. <laughs> um, <laughs> we didn't intentionally create it. Our audiences did. But that's a fun story for a different time. Uh, we, the, An improviser who worked with us years ago created this storytelling framework called Crow. Uh, storytelling framework in the moment to help us remember what pieces of the story humans want to kind of hang their hat on. Mm. C is for character, R is for relationship, O is for objective, and W is for where. And if we have all four of those things, or at least pieces of those things, humans can fill in the rest. And so we try to establish little nuggets of those things quickly on stage, like who is your character? Like, what do they do? Or uh, like define something about them that's interesting. Uh, The R for relationship, like what is their relationship to other people in the scene uh, or the other objects in the scene if there are no people in the scene? Like, they're not just a person delivering a monologue. They right. exist in a space with other things. And so what is their attitude towards the th- people, the things in the space? The things in the space. Uh, objective, what do they want? They're not just isolated in time. They have short-term goals. They have long-term goals. Uh, and then the where, which is so important. You know, so the book, Design Beyond Devices, is about... Um, taking our work to the next level. We broadening our perspective from the assumption that we had for many years that we're tied to a keyboard and a and a mouse and a monitor. Uh-huh. And and we've moved to having one-on-one relationships with like a smart speaker or a phone. But as as you know, and we've experienced now, our experiences kind of cross all these boundaries. We move from the phone to the smart speaker to the computer. And as we move, environments become key like the context becomes key and you know there are researchers who are really good at this but i think a lot of designers who are either solo or people just coming into the field or people who were highly specialized maybe working in an office and a productivity tool for a long time it was easy to become complacent about the where in particular right uh you know we we thought we knew what an office was like we thought we knew what a home was like and I think this year in particular blew hmm. both of those images completely out of the water. And uh, so the Crow framework in the book, I take that mnemonic and I, I, I lean into it and give you questions for like how to apply that to research, uh, customer research. Like what questions to ask? What are the the dimensions of character? Like the the fixed dimensions versus sort of the uh, fungible dimensions. Uh, what are the questions you should be asking about your customers where early in the process uh, to kind of convince your stakeholders that maybe they don't know everything about where their customers are right now. Mm. Maybe they don't understand all the nuances. Because uh, if you don't understand that stuff up front, all the decisions you're making all of the other framework you're building for your multimodal or cross-device experience will be on shaky ground. And these are such complex experiences. You owe it to yourself and your product and your company to build a strong foundation. Mm, that that notion of uh, multimodal is something I really want to dig into. So let's take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, I have a lot of questions. 
This episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at Hotjar. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you either have a website or you've worked on a website. It seems likely that you've been involved in putting the time and energy into getting a website live. You don't want all that hard work to go to waste by not knowing what your visitors are doing when they visit your site, right? Of course not. Uh, you know that each visit to your site is an opportunity to get more and more important data that helps you convert more visitors into customers. But you might not know that you can unlock that data with Hotjar. Hotjar is a behavior analytics and user feedback service. Uh, they help you understand the behavior of your website users and also get feedback uh, from them through heat maps and session recordings and surveys. Uh, that helps you take a lot of the guesswork out of how visitors use your site, making it easier to convert them into customers. Now, I have, uh, in my career, spent a lot of time working on both qualitative as well as quantitative ways of improving digital products. Uh, I've also long been a strong advocate for individual user privacy, and that's why I was really pleased to see such a thorough privacy statement from Hotjar on their website. They've made really strong commitments to complying with all the privacy legislation that's out there, like GDPR and CCPA. Uh, you can read about all of that and their commitment to your user's privacy on their website. So uh, go over to hotjar.com. That's H-O-T-J-A-R.com. And if you want to try Hotjar Business, uh, you can do that for 90 days for free. That's three whole months with no credit card required. Just click the link that I've put down in the show notes. You can see how visitors are really using your website, collect user feedback, turn more of them into customers. And when your 90-day trial is up, you can just add your payment details to keep the business plan going or downgrade to a free account. You don't miss out on that important data from your site visitors. Learn more, hotjar.com, uh, and check out that 90-day trial totally free click the link in the show notes our thanks to hotjar for their support of this show and all of relay fm all right i want to tell you uh about an experience i had this weekend uh that i think fits in pretty well to uh what i was sort of gleaning from your book as i was reading through it uh about a week ago i got a new washer and dryer and they connect to the internet and i was uh i was sitting in my uh living room and the washer finished. It sent a message uh, that appeared as a little tap on my wrist, which I raised my wrist. I saw that the washer was done. I told my watch that I wanted to pause the movie. And then I said, please turn on the lights to the utility room. And I got up and I switched the laundry over and I came back and started the movie again. And I was like, wow, I crossed over a lot of what you would call modes of interaction in that one experience. Um, and that is all on top of the fact that it actually worked considering the atrocity of the LG entire digital experience that they have. But that little bit works. Uh, what's interesting is they also want me to connect my Amazon account so they can automatically order me detergent. And that was a line I was not willing to cross. But uh, but the notification bits were all really cool. And it, it was like, oh, that's, that's how this is all supposed to work. So um, it felt kind of like, yeah, as I was reading through your book and the different modes and how we like decide which interaction to, to use to, to, for input and output, uh, there was a lot there. 
Oh yeah, that's I'm gonna I might come back and uh, de- deconstruct that for a case study later because I have <laughs> questions too. Like, did LG control the whole thing, or was like your uh, the, uh, the movie? I assume was a separate system, yep. and your watch was a different was that iOS or Android? So many questions, <laughs> but yes. Um, and I'm glad it worked well. Like, there's there's a lot of moving parts there, and not everybody can say the same thing currently. Right. That, but uh, and. That interruption, you know, you're watching a movie and the de- device interrupting you. That in the sanctity of your home, it in this call, the call in, in this case, the call was coming from inside the house. So at least uh, you <laughs> yeah. knew it was coming. Right. Uh, but it's what a great example of uh, how many moving parts it takes to create something simple, which is just tell me when the laundry's done so I can go deal with it. Right. Like it's it seems like such a simple ask. But, you know, we use the word orchestration in the book because there's uh, it really is like a symphony of different devices and a symphony of different things. Um, And in uh, chapter uh, in in chapter three, we we talk about um, understanding busy humans, because once you understand your context as a human being, like you're watching a movie, uh, how do you model that? uh, For your system, Uh, how do you start to understand that you you as my customer are not always going to be idle. You might be doing other things. You might be watching a movie. You might be actively engaged in flow somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like it, you, you might be editing a document. You might be on a phone call. And the the etiquette, the social etiquette of what we should do in those situations differs. Um, it, you know, in some cases, it might be appropriate for it to, to actually say to you, uh, hey, uh, the laundry's done. Versus, like, if I'm on a phone call, it should probably just beep at me because the laundry can wait a few minutes until I'm off the phone because I might lose context if if there's something important in the conversation. Now, we don't always control all of the systems, but we can't do anything about that etiquette if our system doesn't understand what those states are, like what the human activities are and have any representation of what the human might be doing. To do that, we have to come from that customer understanding, build a model in our digital systems, and then look for signals from our human, from our that that they're engaged in one of those types of activities. Uh, you know, if my if I'm connected to a phone system and they're on a call, that's a signal that they're in my book. We call it live, like a live activity where you would lose context if you interrupt them. So don't right. <laughs> uh, don't don't go with the intrusive stuff there. Uh, versus something that's a little bit more sustained and longer term and can be paused, then maybe you can go in with an announcement or something, maybe a little bit more verbose, a little bit more interruptive because you, uh, but you can't do the right thing if you don't know what the right thing is. And you don't know what the right thing is if you don't have context. Right. And so you talk a little bit in the beginning of the book about how to tr- how, how to figure out what those contexts could even be, like the full scope of them through a, a series of uh generally understood user research techniques, but also kind of contextualized for so much new stuff is, is happening that maybe some of those techniques don't work. Right. Um, right. So, uh, so what, what should you talk about that, that a little bit? Like how, how do we know, especially uh, across all the different manufacturers of devices um, and all the different systems, how could we possibly understand all the contexts that our users could be in? It's a tough problem. I think that 
one has to assume that it's not a fully open system because it's an easy problem it's a, if it's a fully open system, right? Um, like if you're it would, if you're within iOS and it's the, the user's given you all of their permissions, then there's a lot of signals available to you. And, and ideally, uh, anything from activity time, like the screen, if the screen is locked and we're not getting signal, for, and if, if the customer's got a phone and a watch and neither of those is sending any signals, uh, then they may be asleep. You know, or or they've already got sleep configured. And we definitely should be respecting all of those boundaries, by the way. Uh, but if there's, you know, if we if we know that like the screen time situation is being engaged, okay, well, the customer's already on the phone or they're already on advice. So the odds are they're already engaged in activity. So maybe we shouldn't be pushing marketing information at this time because right. they're not idle. Um, if we're if we're working on a with on or with a camera or visual sensor based device, is the customer nearby? Are they moving or are they not moving? Um, you know, when was we can do things like if the customer engages with your product at certain times, we can start to infer uh, when they might be receptive to engaging with you or when they might not be. Um, you know, with the the case of the washer, it might be that over time it learns that you like to respond within the first 10 minutes. And so it doesn't, or you, you typically respond unprompted within the first 10 minutes. So it only prompts you if you don't show up within the first 10 right. minutes, maybe, right. um, or it, it knows you're, it, it knows you're in the next room. So it figures that you hear the beep or something like that. There are a lot of different, the more devices you have in play, the more creative you can get about, uh, figuring out where the customer is, what else they might know. Um, and, and give just the right amount of information. But some of the, the factors in play there, you, you heard me talk a little bit about uh, learning, which is a little bit, people jump to the, the conclusion that it's like this monolithic AI, right. or it's even <laughs> like machine learning. Uh, they, it doesn't have to be a huge monolithic thing when it's a one-on-one interaction with the system. It's kind of like just, do you get consent from the customer to say like, can I, can I track what times you use us? and adapt our behavior accordingly. Yeah. It's and that's just a one-on-one interaction. That's not me tracking all of human behavior. That's just me developing a relationship with you the customer. Uh there's using the sensors again you want to be uh ambient sensor use is ch- uh, is uh, a bit dangerous. You don't want to just pull a camera sensor when the person's not actively engaged. Uh but you could at least use with Smart speakers. When was the last time you heard someone engage with this particular smart speaker? Uh, like, when was the last time you heard someone say Alexa to, Alexa to this smart speaker? Mm-hmm. Um, without that's something that tells you whether or not the person's likely to be in the room without having to sample the audio uh, or anything like that. There's, I guess, my point is there's there's no silver bullet, but there's ways to be creative on any device to try to get at what the customer's doing and where they are. And inferring. We're never going to be 100% correct, especially if we're only working with a single device and the signals from a single device. Uh, but we owe it to our customers over time to try, like to, to do more than expect customers to adapt to us. Um, if we really aspire to uh, to take our devices to the next level. I thought, you know, there was a super interesting uh, framework that you were you were laying out for once we... Once we do understand some sense of context, uh, how do we respond? And, and I mean, we as designers or the people behind the, the system. Um, and, uh, and you had this framework for 
like where physically is the user in relationship to the device, right? Are they near it or are they far away? And then how much info do we really need to give them? Do we have to give them a lot of info or is it really tightly scoped, right? So if I'm very near to my watch and have very tightly scoped, right, like piece of information, which is like literally dry or done, right? Like that's it. That's the entire message. That's a perfect interaction, right? Like put it on the watch. Don't put it very big on the screen where I'm watching the movie, right? Like, you know, right. that kind of stuff. And I, and I thought, uh, so, so you've got that sort of two by two of, uh, near or far from the device and rich or scoped information. I thought that was a really great way of at least saying like, what should we attempt? Thank you. That, that was, and I think we weren't ready for it when I was still at Amazon. I was like trying to get us like, Hey, Hey, there's this, these two dimensions I think are, are what, uh, are what are really, uh, differentiating the experiences we have because we've got Echo Show and we've got like Echo mm. and, uh, but, and, and we've got Fire TV. But um, so you gave a great intro to it. They, these two dimensions that drive this, I call it the spectrum of multimodality in chapter seven and that help you decide what, how to use the different capabilities your devices already have or which devices to use because your customer is surrounded by these devices. They mm. already have them. Yep. And you probably can develop a skill for one or use the microphone in a device. Or as you pointed out, many of us have these smartwatches available. Uh, the phone can act as anything from a mobile device to a rich device, depending. Uh, is is like how close is the device to you? Uh and how rich is the information that uh, you need to convey to the customer? And once you know those two things, again, you need to have that context. You can place it on a, a two-by-two matrix that's in the book that I call the spectrum of multimodality. And where you place it on this matrix puts it in one of four categories. There's uh, anchored experiences, which is what you and I are talking on right now. It's yeah. so like a desktop experience, something that essentially requires me to be close to the device, but because I'm close to it, we can make assumptions like there's input devices I can touch and reach uh, or speak to very closely. Uh, there's rich uh, output devices that I can see and hear from. Um, and so I can we can make that assumption that rich output and input are possible because it's anchored. Uh, we have the uh, we have direct interactions, which you gave a great example of with which is uh, input and devices that are kind of tethered to us they they're mobile uh, or they're very close to us right. they tend to be super constrained they're like fitbits and watches uh, what they give up by being mobile and close to us is richness so uh they, they as you pointed out you can't show a lot on those screens but if you don't have a lot of information to show they're a great choice we have the intangible quadrant, which is, you know, our smart speakers. When you don't have a lot of information to show, but you don't have a device nearby mm. or your customer's hands are empty, so they wouldn't even be able to, like, touch the thing on the smartwatch, uh, an intangible interaction is a great choice. Uh, you can't, But with intangible interactions, you can't assume that the customer can see the device and you can't assume that the customer can touch the device. It's just uh, you, and that takes a lot of options off the table. And acoustic memory, humans, their ability to process uh, audio is more limited than our ability to process visuals. And so we can't we can't just like throw several paragraphs of information at you like I can if I put a word document up. Um, and so that's why it's one of, we we need to to limit rich information on that audio channel. So if you have rich information, we we want we probably want to at least supplement the audio with some 
visual representation uh, as a backup. Um, it's not saying you can't do rich uh, stuff in the audio channel. Obviously, screen readers do it all the time. Some people don't have a choice. But when we talk about like optimizing things and uh, choosing an exp- kind of choosing which experience is best suited to uh, your customer, that's kind of where intangibles land. And then the the top right quadrant is adaptive experiences, where your experience lets customers choose what's right for them. Where they yeah. could go all audio if they want, they could use uh, the screen when they want. They can uh, they can use a little bit of both p- potentially, but it, it adapts based on circumstances or customer preference. And so it it sometimes it might act like an, an anchored experience. Sometimes it might act like an intangible experience. The thing about the uh, the adaptive quadrant is it's very uh it's it's very inclusive right the more choice you give people the more uh you're allowing folks who are on say the screen reader side of the spectrum who do have visual disabilities to participate in your system without needing additional assistive technology like if you did allow them to just use voice all the time even if it was rich information hey that's great i don't need assistive technology i feel fully included this is wonderful if you did allow people to use visuals all the time on a system that supported voice input then you don't have to worry about uh, you know, uh, vision impaired customers feeling left out, but that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to make a, a system fully uh, inclusive both ways. And even coming into the middle, which is more likely where if you look at the Echo Show, you have some light voice, like it'll give you the essence of your voice response. You know, if you ask for the weather, it'll give you the direct response. What temperature is it? It's 45 degrees. And what you get on the screen is an extension. Mm. It's more. It's like, here's the five day. Um, Now, if you speak to the Echo, it actually gives you the more in voice. You, You say, what's the temperature? It's like, oh, it's 41 degrees. The high is going to be 60, 65 today. Uh, It gives you a little more because there's no other choice. Um, and so you can see how even like, between those two quadrants, Amazon's making a conscious choice to uh, change what they're they're giving out uh, potentially because of what's available to the customer. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It also reminds me, if you do get really deep into the entire like Apple ecosystem, how uh, handoff works, where it's it's becoming, and it's taken them, I don't know how many, five iterations of the operating system, but to the point where now I very frequently, I'm looking at something at my phone and I sit down on my desk and it's very subtly off to the side of my you know app switcher. Like, hey, did you want to keep looking at that thing? Oh yeah, I did. And it brings it right onto my the screen of my Mac, you know, um, switching modalities and, um, and, and doing that in a way that feels like I get to choose. But, you know, and, um, and to your point, I think that's incredibly powerful. Like, again, I don't want to like beat this, uh, washing machine story to death, but the, uh, the fact that like, it was my choice to only get notifications during the movie as taps on my wrist. That's all I wanted. Nothing else gets through, not even a phone call, right? Like mm-hmm. everything goes to the wrist, uh, during the movie. And then after the movie, sure. Like, you know, uh, I wouldn't mind my smart speaker just yelling at me. That's fine because I'm cooking, you know, and like get my attention anyway. Um, having some sense of control, again, as a customer to multiple corporations with devices, right? Like, um, and having them all kind of have the same level of respect for uh, what I need at the moment. Uh, that's, that's uh, we're getting there, but it's challenging. I, I yes. Think, yeah, yeah. And as uh, you know, 
even and your example about the Mac and being able to switch from the phone to the desktop it just demonstrates why even if you don't think you're at the cutting edge right now, even if you're not designing for smart speakers or like these uh, these smart home devices, you're at the cutting edge because yeah. your website's getting used cross device. You know, right. they, like your your phone, your phone, like if your mobile first site's getting kicked over to desktop in the middle of a task. Uh, what, what, or vice versa, your desktop site's get kicked back over to mobile. Um, have you thought through that? Ideally, you, you, you know, it at least is responsive enough to, to cope with that. But what, what are like the, the contextual implications of someone making that switch? Uh, why would they make that switch? Are there other, can, can you make better use of the additional context that somebody's gaining once they go to desktop? Um, there's there's lost potential or there's a, there's potential on the table potentially that people aren't uh tracking um, and regardless like you're being dragged along on this journey right. <laughs> people are making the choices for you um and, and the same thing with like when we talk about intangible experiences even if you think you don't have an intangible experience uh your customers are using screen readers. You have an intangible experience. Like people are do, there are people who can't use your, your experience with, uh, you, you know, with visuals. Yeah. They're so, and I guess it's not really an intangible experience using a screen reader. It's more of an adaptive experience because they are tethered to the, the computer. Uh, most of the time they're using a, a keyboard, uh, but it's not a very good adaptive experience. It's not adapting well to them. Uh, in many cases, there's, there's, uh, it's awkward in places. The information architecture doesn't line up. So it's not like we get to choose not to be in this new world. We're already there. Um, and by choosing to engage in it, maybe you expand your market. Maybe uh, maybe by creating something that's not just uh, a default, you actually get to be at the cutting edge. You get to include everybody. You, you, you get to be at the forefront So and expand your market at, at the same time. Uh, so I don't think we get to sit and say like, ah, oh, this isn't for me. Uh, hmm. You're gonna, <laughs> you're already here. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> Especially that's... now that we're in this pandemic world. I had this moment giving a talk this week where someone was like, uh, "How do you hope this book's gonna impact people? Or how do you think it's gonna see? How do you pe- think it's gonna land with people?" Uh, and I was thinking about the spectrum of multimodality and especially the intangible quadrant. And I'm like, oh my god, fomites, right? Like uh, <sighs> contagious surfaces. All these things in our workplaces, nobody's going to want to touch when we go back to work. <laughs> right, right. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what we're going to be, what we're going to do right. with open workspaces and like conference rooms. Like I was designing for conference rooms before this whole thing happened. And now I'm like, are whiteboards still a thing? Do we bring our own markers? Do we yeah. just go to mural? Like that's a cross device thing. Like we... What what do we do? Uh, the, like with key, do we want keyboards in open workspaces? Maybe we do, but that's maybe we don't. Right. I don't know. Like, there's some really big questions uh, that might require us to really lean into some of these things. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You're you're absolutely right. Well, um, let's take another break, uh, and we'll be right back. And this episode of Presentable is also brought to you by our friends at SyncUp, a 
OneDrive podcast uh, from Microsoft. Uh, look, we're always looking for a new show to listen to, a new podcast, a new uh, set of guests, or things like that. Like, and if you are, uh, check out SyncUp uh, because it takes you behind the scenes of OneDrive, so you can learn how to connect files, share your documents, and work from anywhere. And you'll get to hear about the design and development side of things too. Uh, each show covers a dedicated topic, guest interviews, news and announcements, plus special topic outside of the technology norm, which is always interesting. Uh, so just, just so you have an idea of what to expect, I want to tell you about some of the topics you might be interested in uh, that were on previous episodes. They've talked about empowering Mac users, uh, changing management and, adopt, and product adoption, customer success, the file sharing. Um, and this is super interesting, how to use a personal vault, which uh, I just thought was fascinating, this, this idea of being able to put stuff... Uh, uh, in a cloud service is incredibly secure and you know that it's totally encrypted and nobody can, um, can get access to your most private documents. So go and have a listen now. Just search for SyncUp, that's S-Y-N-C-U-P, wherever you get your podcasts or, or just click the link that's in the show notes for this episode. Go check it out. Uh, our thanks to SyncUp and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, so uh, you have you have spoken a few times uh, so far about uh, the implications for all of these different interlocking technologies for people with disabilities. It seems abundantly clear that we can't just sort of you know design for ourselves anymore or, or anything like that. But th- this notion of w- what actually constitutes a disability. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as being enormously contextual, like not being able to see a screen is a context I'm in all of the time. Um, right. but it's a context that some people are in all of the time. Um, and, and that kind of thing, it, it also sort of brushes up against a lot of what you're talking about in the book around the ethical choices we're making and the idea of if we do this, what are the implications and, and how can we pause to, to think about that stuff? So I wonder if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. I'd, I'd love to. I know a lot of designers are probably familiar with the uh, Microsoft Inclusivity Toolkit, which talks right. not just about permanent disabilities, but temporary disabilities and situa- situational disabilities. Yep. Uh, and and largely that's an empathy, a, a tool for empathy, right? Helping us uh, get a little bit of perspective on folks who live with these things all the time. Like maybe uh, having our hands full helps us understand a little bit of what it's like not to be able to use our hands. Not to say that it's the same thing as not being able to use our hands all the time, because it's a very different thing. But um, all human beings have times in their lives where their hands are inaccessible to them for some reason. And that means interfaces must always interact with people who at some point, all their customers are going to have their hands full at some point. And we have more of an opportunity than ever now because all of our devices are capable of making these ad- adaptations where they weren't before. Like it was, it was, it was irrelevant 15 years ago because the keyboard and mouse were how we interacted with devices. It was like, yeah, if your hands are full, then it's not computer time. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> now, you know, the kitchen, of course, is the biggest example where uh, if your hands are full, it's still kitchen time, and we need to work around, uh, need to work around you, and. You know, it was really it was really impactful for me when I joined the Echo Project, uh, going to the the Amazon website. We were still in beta at that time, uh, just coming out of beta into full release, and seeing like so many of the reviews were from people who computing had left behind. You know, they were like, I 
this device has changed my life. Like they, this was, but when you could only get one echo, right? Like it was like a beta, you could get approved for one. And they were like, I'm paraplegic. My nurse unplugs the device at night and brings it upstairs with me so I can control the lights in my bedroom. Uh, And you're like, ha, okay. This, we, we, we really have something here and we've really been letting these people down for a long time. Like there's, um, or, or technology just hadn't caught up yet. But when new technology showed up, there's a lot of like voice first or voice only, but we don't want to overcompensate and go like all to the new technology because then we'll leave more people behind. Like there were, there are folks who maybe are part of like hearing impaired yep. who will be left behind by that world. So it's, it's not like we could just say, okay, it's all smart speakers now. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we have to... It, with great power comes great responsibility. We got great power with the sp- smart speakers, but we can't just like toggle a switch. We have to figure out a way to integrate them into the existing technology landscape we have in order to be inclusive, in order to in- make sure that we don't just have the same exclusion problem that we had before. And it's not just uh, the right thing to do. It's like the legal thing to do. If you want to work with the government, you've got to be inclusive. So uh, you've got to uh, uh, get to think about these things. As I mentioned before, it's a market issue. Uh, it, as has been pointed out by a number of folks, we're all aging. I am aging quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, it's it's the sad reality of 2020 is that 2020 is a disability machine. Like long COVID has had horrifying effects and effects we really don't fully understand uh, it, it, of all kinds, like uh, mobility, impa- uh, uh, mobility impairments, cognitive impairments, uh, all kinds of things. And so the need to lean into inclusive design is greater than ever and is increasing more than ever because it's not just aging that's pushing us towards uh, the critical mass for inclusion, but uh, but COVID as well. And I mean, there there have always been disabled folks advocating for inclusion and participation in the design process, but this year, year is just amplifying those cries. Um, but I make the point in the beginning of the book that the disabled design community uh, has made some very valid points about the fact that they like a a disability design sprint where a couple of disabled people are brought in up front and then never just dis- talked to again right. is not what the right. disability community is after. Um, they really, the disability community wants to be involved more fully. Uh, they don't want to be uh, like just sort of set aside as inspiration or as the target, like the OXO Good Grips is like, I made this for you. They want to, the, the disability community. And I, uh, you know, very personally, like this year, I was formally diagnosed with a disability myself. I didn't realize I'd been living with it my whole life. <laughs> that explains a few things. <laughs> but uh, we we don't, we, you know, we want to be designing with. We, it, there's a the nothing about us without us a rallying cry that's been around for several decades now. Yeah. Um, and the same could be if there's a similar cry when it comes to like racial equity in design. But when we talk about inclusivity, when we talk about the opportunities we have in front of us, we have so much material to work with. And we talk about multimodality and cross device design. And there are many designers out there with invisible and visible disabilities, very passionate about the subject and wanting to engage uh, to help us move to the next level. And it's not just a niche subject. Like, innovation in this space will take us to like to mainstream success. 
uh, like, and it will help us grapple with this complexity. This complexity is is the suggestion for the improv scene. This complexity is the gift uh, that that will take us uh, to the next stage. Yeah, yeah, it really gets back to representation, doesn't it? Uh, and the like the diversity of our teams or, or our companies in general about how the structural problems in our society have not allowed for participation at the creation level. Uh, and I think that's uh, something that, thankfully, I think we're looking hard at now and, and, and realizing, oh my God, look at the gap. And sometimes that representation can lead to very easy fixes that will ca- save you a lot of pain, like TikTok, for example. I've spent a lot of time on TikTok this year. Uh, <laughs> and they don't have auto-captioning. Just don't have it. All the other major media platforms have some form. Sometimes it's not great and it gets like dismissed as captioning, but at least it exists. Like it's and it gives people a sense of where things are. But the only way you get captions on TikTok are you manually caption it yourself, which discriminates against folks with manual disabilities, of which I was one for most of the year until I had some corrective surgery, oh. or you pay. Uh, you have to go and find uh, find an app to go uh, to go caption. So it's you know putting all the burden on the disabled person, which if they were trying to do business with the government would, would uh, exclude them from doing that. They're not currently. <laughs> they have other problems with the government. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, all you would need is like what like to talk to one person who has a, a mobility or an auditory dis- uh, impairment. Or someone who commutes without headphones to be like, I really need captions. Yeah. <laughs> Any one of those three categories, you'd be like, ah, uh, this, it feels incomplete. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, this has just been a phenomenal conversation um, and covered a lot of ground, which I really appreciate. The book is called Design Beyond Devices, Creating Multimodal Cross Device Experiences from uh, our good friends over at rosenfeldmedia.com. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And, and it says here, if you, if you order it before the book ships, you get a fiver off. That's pretty cool. So, um, when is the uh, when is the book coming out? December first, so very very soon. Uh, and uh, so we'll be released available on the Rosenfeld Media site, uh-huh. uh, and and of course Rosenfeld Media site uh, they they bundle ebooks with their print books, yep. which is always a lovely uh, deal. Um, and you can get the book uh, on Amazon at, uh, worldwide. Uh, print copies are a little harder to come by uh, in non-North uh, American territories. I think there's some in the UK, but uh, please, uh, uh, I, I, and let me know what you think. You can find me on uh, two places on Twitter. You can find me at Funny Godmother, which is my all of the tweets Twitter, because uh, I, as, as was mentioned, I have a lot of sides. I'm an actor and uh, uh, I'm on TikTok and, I, I, and I, you know, I'm at the foundation. I do all kinds of things. So Funny Godmother is my main social handle on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. If you if you want to buckle up for everything, if you just want content specifically around the book and my design education company, Idea Plats, uh, where I announce my workshops and my talks and uh, specific stuff like that, you can find me at Idea Plats on Twitter. And uh, my personal website is CherylPlatz.com, uh, which kind of gives you a, more of an overview of like the acting stuff uh, and uh, all of the, all of the other fun things that are out there. Yeah, fantastic! I've got links to all of that in the notes for this episode, uh, so you can click through there. Cheryl, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. And that's another episode of Presentable. 
Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable.